If you walk up the steps to the British Museum, through the big doors and into the Great Hall, under the big Norman Foster roof, into the Egyptian rooms off to the left side of the chamber, and having continued through two more connecting doorways, turn left, you'll find yourself face to face with sculpture 118809A. Produced in northern Iraq around the year 710 BC, 16 tons of gypsum was quarried and intricately carved into the figure of a human-headed winged bull. At over 4 metres tall and equally as long, it cuts an imposing figure. Designed to ward off evil spirits, it was placed alongside another similar statue, flanking a gateway in the citadel wall at Khorsabad, the seat of Sargon II, then ruler of Assyria. The statue is impressive to look at, and I must say that were I an evil spirit, I might have reservations about passing under its gaze, but King Sargon and his successors knew that statues alone were a shaky basis for security, and guards were also posted at the gate. It might have been the same year the statue was installed, and it might have been a decade later, but some of these guards got a little bored one day and decided to pass the time by carving a rudimentary game board into the base of the statue. Preserved for over two and a half thousand years, this game board is still visible, roughly scratched out in the soft stone, perhaps by the tips of their spears. I recall seeing this as a child, and upon asking what the game was or how it was played, I remember that the answer was something along the lines of, we don't know, it's been lost to history. I knew instantly in that moment that the game can't have been very good, because who could forget the rules to a good game? Surely people would play it, keep playing it, and pass it on to successive generations? It makes sense, right? Well, from this basis, you can also infer that a game that has stood the test of history must therefore be good. Chess is the absolute example of this, and that's what this podcast is about. I'm going to talk about the history of the game, from its strange prototypes to the modern rule set. I'm going to discuss the different areas of chess and the way it made itself to Europe from its distant beginnings. Welcome to A Brief History of Chess. You might be yet to play your first game, or you might play every day. It's estimated that around 605 million people play chess regularly, and around 70% of adults say they've tried it at least once. Even if you've never played, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of chess, a strategic showdown between two players over a checkered board. In fact, did you know that the word checkered means chessboard-like? You've probably heard the term checkmate used to describe a final and inescapable success or victory. I'm going to skip the sponsor section this episode and just personally implore you to give chess a go yourself. Listen to the episode first, of course, but give it a go afterwards, or tomorrow. You decide. You can play online if you want to. Thank you to me suggesting that you try chess for sponsoring this episode. It's natural to think of chess as having sprung fully formed, both board and pieces, from a single inspired source, but its origins are somewhat murky. It's almost certain that chess was developed in northern India between 300 and 500 AD, but as we'll see, it takes a bit of time and evolution to become the game we know today. To give a basic definition, chess is a game played on an 8x8 grid with a series of pieces, some of which have special moves, and one of which, the king, decides the fate of the game if captured. There were previous local games that involved this kind of grid system, and the different characters with different abilities, and what seems to have happened is that these evolved, and as time went on, one main rule set was adopted more generally. This game was called Chaturanga, a Sanskrit word that translates as being comprised of four parts. This was a poetic term for an army in the Gupta period of India, referring to the infantry, cavalry, chariots and elephants that comprised the force in those days. English-speaking chess players would be very familiar with the pawn, knight, rook and bishop, and might be confused by my mention of elephants and chariots, but these early Chaturanga pieces form the blueprint for chess. 
Interestingly, certain languages didn't experience the same transformations from elephant to bishop or chariot to rook. And I can tell you that in Ukrainian, for example, the word for bishop in chess is slon, meaning elephant. Going even further, you have countries such as Thailand and Armenia that converted the original chariot into boats and ships rather than rook or castle that the Europeans adopted. There's a likely apocryphal tale accounting the creation of Chaturanga involving a Gupta prince dying in battle and a survivor using pieces on an Ashtapada board, an earlier form of 8x8 board game, to explain the ebb and flow of the battle and the death of the prince. The Ashtapada game was mentioned as early as 200 AD, and curiously enough, it's mentioned in a list of games that the Buddha wouldn't play. Another origin story, this time from China, describes a general called Han Xin inventing a game depicting dueling armies around 200 BC. I think this is unlikely due to some key differences between Chaturanga and Shang-Chi, or Chinese chess. For one, the board for Chinese chess has a river running across it, and the pieces are placed on the intersections between the grid squares, not on the centre of the tiles. To paraphrase German chess historian Peter Banaschak, speaking on a potential Chinese origin for the game, this hypothesis is based on virtually nothing. I suspect it started in northern India and spread to China, where it began evolving separately. It didn't just spread to China though, and it was chesses spread westwards along the Silk Road and into the Persian Empire that had perhaps the most transformative effect on the game's future, at least for my European listeners. There's a story of an Indian king of the Maukhari dynasty, the successors of the Guptas, gifting a chess set to the Sassanid king Khosrau I in the 6th century, and sending with it the challenge to Khosrau's courtiers to learn the game or solve some early chess puzzle, the eventual solution to which apparently delighted the king. However the game arrived in Persia, it was here that chess began to take on a form recognisable to modern players, even gaining the first etymological roots of its name. In the final days of the Sassanid Empire, chess became popular, and due to Arabic not having a native ng or ch sound, Chaturanga became known as Shatranj. Shatranj is pretty much chess, but at this time it was still a long way off the modern game. The pieces moved differently, and it was actually possible to capture the king, ending the game prematurely if the opponent wasn't alert. Early Shatranj players found that this was often an unsatisfying end to the game, so the phrase Shah, Persian for king, was said when a move was played that threatened the opponent's king, and it is from this utterance that the word chess derives. Likewise, Shah Mat, literally translated as the king is helpless, was used to alert the opponent that the game was over, since no possible move would save the Shah. The German Shak or the French Eshek show off the Shah root more obviously than the English chess, but it's perhaps the Russian word for chess shakmati, that shows off this original route most clearly. When it comes to the pieces, the movement of the knight and rook, and sorry to keep droning on about etymology, but rook comes directly from the Persian word for chariot, rook, R-U-K-H, remain unchanged right up until the present. The bishop, at this point, still the elephant, still moves diagonally, but only two squares at a time, and also has the ability to jump over pieces. The pawns move similarly to the way they do today, but they had yet to gain the ability to jump two squares on their initial move. Perhaps the biggest change in movements is that of the queen, at this point called the furs, or counsellor, who in the 6th century could only move one square at a time diagonally, a far cry from the multi-directional board-spanning power of the modern queen. Other weird quirks were that castling wasn't a thing yet, and also that placing your opponent in stalemate resulted in a victory. I can imagine that a lot of arguments were had, and that a lot of boards were flipped in the immediate aftermath of this rule change. The next century saw the gradual invasion of the Persian Empire by the armies of Islam, and they had another lasting effect on the game. Their religious doctrines forbade idolatry, and the abstract design of modern chess pieces can be traced back to the Muslim edicts banning the depiction of human figures in art. 
Next time you look at a pawn and think, wow, that doesn't look at all like a foot soldier, you have 7th century Muslims to blame. The caliphate didn't just take the little faces off the pieces though, they also spread the game across their empire, which at this point included a portion of the Iberian Peninsula. Over the next 300 years or so, chess would travel around the Muslim world, gaining popularity, and it was through this Moorish conduit with Europe that the game of chess would arrive in Christendom. I feel like I've said this a few times this episode, but I'm going to tell you another likely apocryphal story. There's an account of Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Empire, being gifted a chess set in 802 AD by Caliph Baghdad Harun al-Rashid of Arabian Nights fame. I think it's a testament to the mythos surrounding chess's history that so many of these stories exist, but alas, like the others, there's very little evidence to support this. I think that the reason so many tall tales are spun around the game of chess is that it's seen as a mark of calibre and aptitude, and so many attempts to attribute chess to particular historical figures are just a shorthand for saying, he was a really great guy. But hey, if there are so many of these stories, then perhaps one is true. What we can be confident on is that by the turn of the first millennium, chess had taken root in Europe, and this arrival was treated with the same moral panics that any new sport or hobby has to endure. I want to give you a fun story about an enterprising French priest's response to an 1125 edict by Bishop Guy, banning the game on threat of excommunication. Apparently this priest devised a folding board, which when closed looked like a couple of closed books bound together. I can imagine some sneaky French priests playing a game in the corner of a cloister and, upon hearing footsteps, closing up their board and starting some fake ecclesiastical conversation to hide their crime. But Bishop Guy and the others who sought to limit the game's spread were unsuccessful, and the game made its way all over Christendom. Another amusing banning incident is that of Louis IX, who banned the game in 1254. This is pure speculation, but I'm convinced that he was simply a sore loser who, upon being trounced by a courtier, decided to use his royal decree to outlaw the game in its entirety, rather than suffer another embarrassment. Whilst chess spread through Europe, it was also evolving, and it's in Europe that the features the modern game left out of Shatrange begin to emerge. If you have a favourite card game, you might be familiar with the concept of house rules, and the difference that can arise between nations, or even regions within a country. Well, at this point, chess had a similar thing going, and different rules were tested and tweaked as time went on. For example, until the 14th century, there were actually three ways to win a chess game. By checkmating your opponent's king, having your opponent concede, or by capturing all your opponent's pieces except for the king. In the 1300s, it was declared that taking all your pieces no longer counted as a win. You had to checkmate them. And interestingly, this means that an endgame involving just a king and a bishop becomes a draw, not a victory, because there's no way of forcing a checkmate with just those two pieces. The earliest known European book on chess is the 1283 book, the Libro de los Juegos, containing 150 chess puzzles. It's interesting that people were writing books on the game as it continued to evolve, and a lot of these puzzles are straight up impossible nowadays, with the modern rule set, but it shows a more academic approach to chess. I think the most famous early chess theory book would be the 1561 Libro de la Invención Liberal y Arte del Juego del Accedres by a Spanish priest named Rui López de Segura. Sorry Spanish listeners, my pronunciation during that. In this book, he codified an early rule set, but he also expanded on some opening theory. And amazingly, there's an opening with white, which still bears his name and it's used today. He also coined the phrase gambit, borrowing from the Italian phrase dare il gambetto, which means to put a leg forward in order to trip someone. Even if you've never played chess, you'll recognise gambit from the title of a certain Netflix show, but it's also bled from the world of chess into discussions of political strategy and public relations. 
Sometime around the 14th and 15th century, the bishop gained its full movement distance, but lost its ability to jump. The king gained the ability to move two squares on its initial move, with a jump, and the pawns learnt how to move two squares on their first move. Apparently the empassant rule, by which a pawn can take a pawn that has just advanced two squares as if it had only moved one square, was added a few years later, presumably after some wacky endgames where the pawn seemed to dash past defenders on its bid for promotion. Ah, I should probably talk about promotion too. All sorts of wacky rules were in effect for what happened when the pawn, who could only move forward, reached the other side of the board. Let me list them off for you. At various points, and in various countries, the pawn could either jump back to its starting position, start moving sideways, promote into the piece that corresponded with the file it was on, as in rooks on the far side, then knights, then bishops, etc., promote into any previously taken piece, or promote into any non-pawn or king piece. Once the promotion to any piece rule arrived, it actually took until the 19th century to be fully adopted. Again, imagine the arguments that must have broken out. Perhaps the most dramatic change to the rules was the empowering of the queen to move any distance in any direction. Occurring at the end of the 15th century, it's speculated that this was spurred on by powerful female rulers in Europe at the time, and this took the queen from a relatively weak piece, only able to move two squares diagonally on her initial move and one diagonal thereafter, to the strongest piece on the board. Apparently the game was nicknamed Crazy Queen Chess around this time, and I've heard slightly uncorroborated stories that they also included the the move set of the knight in this movement thing for the queen so the amount of squares that the queen could jump onto on the end game must have been yeah a bit crazy the last major adjustment to the rules was the introduction of castling and with this they took away the king's ability to jump two squares on its initial move in favor of allowing chess's only two-piece movement since by this point most people were simply using the jump rule to effectively castle in two moves anyway by developing the back rank, moving the rook to create a pocket for the king, and then jumping the king into it. By this point, we're pretty much set. Give a chess player from the 21st century a time machine, and they could go back and play quite happily without much risk of upset or offence. Though the rules may have taken a certain amount of time to percolate through borders and across mountain ranges, the essential forms of chess had been codified, and just needed time to spread. The later changes were more ornamental and included things such as white going first and the introduction of time chess to speed up slow-moving competitors. There are stories of players taking multiple hours per move and having their opponents obligated to sit opposite them in frustration the entire time, so it's obvious why they introduced the clock. Amusingly, when they initially introduced time control at some point in the 19th century, players were fined for taking too long instead of losing the game when the clock runs out as it's played today. This led to chess champions with deep pockets ignoring the clock altogether, and for obvious reasons, this was amended shortly afterwards. So at this point the rules are set, and what actually starts to happen is that it's the style of play that starts to evolve. The 19th century saw what is now called the Romantic Era of Chess, and the best way I've heard it defined is with this quote by David Schenk. Romantic players consider winning to be secondary to winning with style. If a computer grinds down a human opponent by shaving small margins of advantage off with every creeping move, a romantic player could be considered the exact opposite. The ideal victory for a romantic era player involves sacrificing multiple pieces for an eventual checkmate. It's still thrilling nowadays to end a game with a calculated checkmate after sacrificing a queen, but for these players, that feeling was the point of the game itself. These reckless flourishes couldn't last forever though, and with the advent of a more coherent competitive scene, and larger prizes to be won, Players turned back to theory and began playing with an increased focus on positional play and eking out minor advantages. 
Chess began to be studied as a science, and nowhere was this more evident than in the USSR. The Soviet chess factory came to dominate the game, and chess took on a bizarre geopolitical role as the two parties in the Cold War sought to prove the supremacy of their political system by producing chess prodigies. I reckon I could do a whole podcast episode on the 1972 World Cup final between Fischer and Spassky, and I think I'll save it for a later date, but look into that, because that is a crazy story from top to bottom. I guess the last major turning point in the story of chess was the introduction of computers to the game. The most famous event being Garry Kasparov, then the reigning champion, playing games against IBM's Deep Blue in 1997. This was a major milestone since it marked the final point at which the hardest opponent to beat at chess was human. Nowadays, the latest iteration of Stockfish, probably the most famous chess computer, plays at an ELO well above 3000, a score no human has ever been able to match. It's sad to see this human ability superseded by machines. But I think we're better at chess than computers, because we can evolve the game and computers can't. I feel like the last thousand years of chess history and the last 50 minutes of this podcast kind of prove that. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode if you got this far. I'm once again going to suggest giving chess a go, and I'll be sure to include a link to chess.com in the episode description if you'd like to try the game online. Anyway, I'm off now, but click subscribe, leave a rating, and stay tuned for next week's episode of totally crucial, extremely relevant, necessary information.